The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, this show's engineer, along with your host, Mari. If you don't know our host, let me tell you a little bit about her. She's a local attorney and privacy consultant, and she's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft with a CD. She sits as an an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in our county. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC News, O'Reilly Factor, Geraldo, and a lot of other shows. Uh, She presented her own 90-minute PBS television special last year, and uh, they air it from time to time. It's called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this show and our other great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Good evening, Mari. Hi there. So what's our show about tonight? Well, we have we are so honored to have the Privacy Commissioner all the way from Canada joining us tonight. Let me tell you a little about a, a little bit about her. Anne Kovikian, Dr. Anne Kovikian, is recognized as one of the top experts in the world in with privacy. Um, She's an avowed believer in the role that technology can play in protecting privacy. And her leadership in the Office of Privacy in Ontario has really helped to develop a number of tools and procedures to ensure privacy is protected in Ontario, Canada, and actually all around the globe. Dr. Kovikian is Ontario's first Information and Privacy Commissioner to be reappointed for a second term. Initially, she was appointed in 1997, and her role was to oversee the operations of the freedom of information and privacy laws in Canada's most populous province, and that was extended to 2009. So she has an opportunity to have a lot more influence. She serves as an officer of the legislature, independent of the government of the day. Her groundbreaking 1999-1995 paper on the advancing privacy protection through the pursuit of privacy-enhancing technologies, or the pet name PET, is now part of the industry lexicon. In in October 2005, Commissioner Kavukian was presented with the Privacy Innovation Award by the International Association of Privacy Professionals. Now, you know, Lloyd, I'm a member of that association, and we've even had uh, the president, who's uh, just a couple weeks ago, was on our show, as well as... uh, Remember uh, Mr. Hughes, who was yeah the executive director. So we we know all about that. It's a great organization, and she should be proud to be an award winner. Um, Dr. Kovikian and the IPC were recognized for the development of groundbreaking privacy short notices. It's a concise and easily understood notice informing individuals of how their personal information is being used. Um, Dr. Kavikian is also the published author of two groundbreaking books on privacy, and one of them is Who Knows? Safeguarding Your Privacy in a Network World, which was 1997, and the other is The Privacy Payoff, How Successful Businesses Build Customer Trust. That was in 2002, so she's been busy writing as well. Dr. Kovikian joined the Office of Information and Privacy Commission in 1987 during its startup phase as his first director of compliance. And in 1990, she was appointed assistant commissioner. And prior to joining the IPC, she she headed the research brand, uh, services branch for the provincial attorney general. So we are so excited to be able to talk to you tonight. And thank you so much for joining us, Anne. Mari, thank you for that lovely introduction. It's so kind of you. Well, listen, you know, I don't think a lot of people realize how really advanced you are in privacy. In fact, in many ways, you're far more advanced than we are in the United States. Well, it's just that in in Canada, we have oversight agencies such as my office that 
we are our responsibility is to oversee compliance with privacy laws. So we are independent agencies, independent of government. I'm an officer of the legislature for the state of Ontario, and I am charged with the responsibility of ensuring compliance with privacy laws and protecting the public's privacy. So the independence I have from government, I'm not funded by directly by the government, but all all of the political parties um, as of through the legislature. That enables me to have the independence to criticize the government if I need to when I conduct an investigation, and it just gives me a lot of freedom. You know, we don't have a privacy commission in, in the United States. The closest thing that we have would be the Federal Trade Commission, as you yes. know. But it is yes. really very different. It is a, a different model in that the, the FTC isn't charged solely with the responsibility of protecting privacy, but they sure do a good job at that. You know, under their um, the Bureau of Consumer Protection, under their mandate to protect consumers against unfair, uh, deceptive, and fraudulent practices, uh, they do very, very good work in terms of um, bringing the bad guys in terms of privacy right. Uh, practices. Right. I mean, they, they can take on cases like they, you know, they had a settlement recently with Choice yes, Point. with Choice Point. It was a, a huge settlement. It, yes. Uh, $15 million. In fact, we had the privacy officer of Choice Point on our show recently. And, and she is wonderful. I have to tell yes. you, she's done an incredible job to clean up house, and I have great respect for her. Yes. And, and in fact, she came on after all of the problems. So yes. I think she is. Uh, Carol has done a, a terrific job, and she did a great interview. So tell us a little bit, because your even your privacy laws are very different. Can you talk about I know you you know the fact that you have this oversight basically but you're independent which is also different from the Federal Trade Commission because yes. they're not independent really from right. government at all right. and and they focus much more on on private industry and and it seems like your charge is much more with governmental entities is that correct it's primarily uh, government public center and sector entities at the state level and at the level of cities municipalities but also last year we passed um, a new law was passed in Ontario called PHIPAA. You have HIPAA. Right. We have PHIPAA, the Personal Health Information Protection Act. And that extends to all private sector organizations that are responsible for health information. So all of our hospitals, all of our testing laboratories, testing facilities, uh, all of our physicians and nurses, basically all healthcare practitioners, all of them fall under this law. So it's increased my mandate considerably as of last year. Wow, you must be busy with that, I'm sure. Well, I, I love it because what could be more important than protecting our health information? Yes. And I've had the most wonderful cooperation from the healthcare sector. The hospitals have been great. The testing facilities, I mean, we've been really working well together. It's great. Well, that's terrific. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, some of the laws that you are to enforce. I, I noticed here when I was looking on your website, which, by the way, it is a fabulous website. Oh, thank at, you. It's ipc.on.ca. Yes. And um, I think you've done a terrific job, but you, you have some information about your Information and Privacy Acts. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the main laws? Certainly. Well, the, the main laws are the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act at the state level and at the municipal level. And we, we are charged with responsibility of both protecting people's personal information that the government holds, but also ensuring that they have a right of access to government-held records. Just as you have federally, you have a, a federal Freedom of Information Act, you have right. a Privacy Act, ours are combined into one statute, and I oversee compliance with both. And it's, it's you know, wonderful because basically it promotes openness and transparency in terms of government. Right. Uh, you know, the government is there at the pleasure of the government, of the governed, right. us the public. Less, uh, they better not forget that. Right. So we need to constantly remind them that information that they have in the form of government records, budgetary information, procedural, administrative information, all those records belong to the public. The public have a right of access to them. So if a member of the public files a request with the government and the request is denied, they can appeal that to my office within 30 days. We investigate, and if we find in favor of the appellant, basically I can order the uh, government department to disclose the records, and they have to do so, uh, and they have a very limited opportunity to file a judicial review of the decision, but it is very limited. It's based on procedural arguments, not on the merits of the case. So our order-making power actually gives us an enormous amount of strength when dealing with the government. 
Well, you know, we don't have that at all. That's right. That's and, right. And that is really terrific. You know, I at first I, I thought maybe you acted like an ombudsman, but, but in, in no. effect you really have a lot more power than an ombudsman. We do, because ombudsmen, as you know, uh, can only make recommendations. Right. They can't order, they can't make rulings that, that the government is required to follow. And But let, let me tell you very clearly, we try wherever possible to mediate all right. cases. So ordering, uh, issuing an order is the, the last resort. We try to get the two uh, sides together and get a settlement that they can both agree upon. And right. we do that in the majority of cases. Three-quarters of our cases are uh, resolved by way of mediation. But in the small minority where you need an order, Man, is it good to have that order-making power, because you can just say, get it out there. And we've done that a number of times, and the government is very good at responding to our orders, and they comply. Well, I think the fact that you, you have the carrot and the stick. Yes, yes, <laughs> that exactly. You know, if you just had the carrot and you didn't have the stick, you wouldn't be able to do as many things as you can do to make sure that there's you're, compliance. You're absolutely right. The stick allows you to use the carrot much more often. <laughs> right. It makes the <laughs> carrot much more palatable, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, so what, in your view, is the biggest single issue with regard to privacy today? And, and I'm talking about worldwide, because you know this whole issue worldwide. I know you, you speak all over the world. Uh, Oh, thank you. Well, you know, I guess there are two issues. Um, the first one I'll lead with is identity theft, which, you know, I don't have to talk to you about because you are the expert in that field. But as you know, most businesses and even consumers still have a long way to go in terms of understanding the identity theft issue. It's, as you know, the fastest growing form of consumer fraud in North America, um, the FTC. The, the latest stats I have is that, that 10 million victims of identity theft each year right. at a cost of $50 billion to businesses and $5 billion in out-of-pocket expenses to individuals. These are staggering numbers. And that doesn't begin to tell the story of what people go through to restore their identity, to restore their good name and their creditworthiness. It's just a nightmare. My heart goes out to individuals in terms of just the number of hours they have to put in to correct what has been done to them. Oh, and we have had many victims on this show, not only victims of financial identity theft, which, by the way, I don't know if you know, but I was one myself. That's how oh, I got into this, so oh I know my. what that's like. You know and firsthand. I, yeah, I know firsthand, and I actually worked really hard to get laws at the state and federal level passed just to help that. Excellent. But And, you know, of course, we also have a lot with this new, uh, we're going to interview next week somebody on cyber identity theft. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and so that's pretty bad. And then, of course, criminal identity theft. But yes. But what I really liked was I read your paper, Identity Theft Revisited, oh. Good Security is Not Enough. And yes. I was so pleased to see someone in your position tell it like it is. So let's oh, let's talk about that because, okay. you know, we can tell people, you know, shred and, and you know, get your credit no. reports <laughs> and monitor them. But, yes. but we know, and I know that you know the truth, that most identity theft really is derived in the business arena. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I you know, it was a hard call whether to, to, I guess, write such a hard-hitting paper. Basically, I say to business, this we are placing you responsible for the majority of identity theft because the, the, the thesis of the paper is that personal information is increasingly collected by more and more businesses and retained in databases held by businesses in plain view, meaning it's largely not encrypted when it's in use, within the office by various employees. We know that 70 to 80 percent of security breaches arise as a result of inside jobs, insiders, rogue employees, disgruntled employees, employees who are bought off. These are the ones who are largely responsible for this. And it is because the businesses retain the databases in a way where the personal identifiers, your name, your social security number, various other numbers, and your home address, phone number, etc., are linked to the transactional data, your banking information or your operational data. It's all there in plain view. So it's like it's like candy to a child. You're saying, here's all this information, uh, but, but you know, don't do anything bad with it. Well, it's just too great a temptation, and given that insiders are largely responsible for this problem, the information is there, very easy for them to access, to sell, to do with as they will. So we said to businesses in this paper, this is your problem. Yes, of course, consumers can, you know, we all have tips for consumers to follow to minimize right, right. becoming a threat, becoming a victim of identity theft. Of course, we should all do that. But even if everyone followed those tips to the letter, 
they still couldn't eliminate the problem at all, even come close because of the business practices that are being followed. And so we hold businesses squarely responsible for this, and I want them to do something about it. And, you know, I was so pleased to hear someone like you say that because we don't get that very much in our country. It's always blame the victim. You know, victims yes. should be educated. Victims should take, you know, responsibility for securing, you know, online and offline, which are great things to do. But you're right. I have had many victims who've called me who've been very security and privacy conscious who haven't even had their name, their their property in their own names, and they still became victims of identity theft. So absolutely. you're absolutely right, and I'm glad that you had the courage to write about that. <laughs> well, you know, I just, I thought, if we're going to do something to be helpful, I mean, we wrote our first paper on identity theft in 1997, almost 10 years ago, and then we said, yeah, consumers, here are the things you should do. And then we identified this as, as what we thought would be an emerging problem. We didn't even come close to how bad it's become. Right. But now, looking back, I'm thinking, uh, that was only part of the story, not the not the most important part. Only seven percent of firms currently encrypt uh, their backup tapes, for example. Where, right. Whereas th- there is such inexpensive off-the-shelf products they can buy to do this. There are the means are available for businesses to to do the kinds of things we propose in our paper. For example, I say anytime you've got personally identifying information linked to transactional data, like account information, etc. You have to separate them. You've got to segregate the personal identifiers in some way. You can encrypt them. You can mask them. You can separate them, put them somewhere else. But you can't have them used on a daily basis in their identifiable form because that's the problem. That's at the heart of the temptation to insiders, for example, to make off with this information. So we have a number of of techniques and and a lot of technology that we discuss in the paper, but the bottom line is we say uh, violations of privacy are largely what we call a negative externality, an external cost that arises out of doing business. You're doing business, you collect this personal information because you need to, it's part of your business. What you don't expect as a byproduct of that is someone's identity gets stolen. So business, this is your responsibility. We're holding you responsible for doing something about it. And then we propose a number of things to, you know, to assist them in terms of what they can do. Right. And you talked about audit trails, which is something we oh. talk about all the time. And very very few companies or governmental agencies really take the time to do these audit trails because sometimes in fact this stuff happens even offline. And, yes. and people have yes. access to cabinets. And there should be audit trails for whoever accesses what so yes. that you can go back and figure out at least, you know, who did this, you know, I, who oh, took I, this information. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I think just the creation of electronic audit tra- trails would make such a difference and, uh, you know, advertising that fact loudly, both inside and outside. So if you do have any employees that are contemplating doing things with people's information, they'll think twice because they know that there'll be trails in place to at least catch them after the fact. And in fact, I just had a meeting with IBM uh, yesterday, and uh, they have come up with amazing, it's called immutable audit trails, that basically would not even an- allow the system's uh, administrator, for example, to tamper with it. Because it's one thing to have audit trails. Then, you know, you buy off the systems administrator, and they can manipulate the audit trail right. so that it can be tampered with and not be a, a true record. Well, IBM, um, through Jeff Jonas, who's the chief architect, has come out with these immutable uh, audit trails that basically, conceptually, would say, you can't tamper with this. That's the direction we have to go in. Audit trails that you can't mess with. And I, just, I get so excited by developments like that in technology. Right. Because it helps us all. Exactly. You know, we recently had on a uh, convicted identity thief on the show. Oh, my. And that was so exciting, Ann, because he talked to us about, and he was not just one of these little guys who does dump, dumpster diving. He kind of yes. laughed at that. Oh. I mean, he served his time, and he told us that he would pay insiders in yeah. banks, in credit reporting agencies, ten thousand uh, dollars, and he was—he didn't just want to have a couple things. He wanted to have, for example, with credit reporting agencies, he wanted to have all the p- entire profile of people who oh, only had wow. credit scar- scores of over seven hundred and twenty. 
So okay. he was that picky. I mean, oh, he, he was <laughs> picky. But he paid $10,000 for this, and he would even pay thousands of dollars to, to get into, um, you know, to get to find somebody within the system who would then be the dirty insider. So, you know, oh. I think, you know, technology is important, and we do have to think about it, but a lot of these people were doing it offline, you wow. know. But again, if if the dirty insider knows that, that if they do something and they access these records, that they're more likely to get, to get caught, caught. That's right. just like you said, that that's, that's the way. And it was funny because when he was on the show, you might want to listen to it because it's on our website. Yes, yes. And uh, Ron Hemphill, and he's okay. also written a book, by the way. Ah. But, but he talks about how he did it. And he also says, you know, this isn't about consumers. This is about companies being, if they weren't so negligent, then we, I wouldn't have been able to do it. That's basically so he, what he, he says. says that. Oh he yeah, says he that. says it right up front. Well, exactly. I've got a, for the next edition of our paper. I've got to quote him. Yes, you <laughs> might want to listen to it because it's a very it's a it's a great interview. Of course, you're a great interview. I want to introduce you again before <laughs> we go to the next question. We've got about ten more minutes, and I want to make sure. sure that anyone who's driving by will will know that I'm speaking with Dr. Ann Kovikian, who is the commissioner of the Privacy Commissioner of Ontario for the Canada Information and Privacy Commission. And so we're thrilled to have you with us. And let's talk a little bit more about. Um, what in in Canada? Um, do you have a security breach law like we have in California? Well, you know, first of all, I have to tell you, I love SB thirteen eighty six. Yes, I think California leads in this area, and we do not have the same law, with the exception of one law, the new law we have in Ontario, PHIPA, the Personal Health Information Protection Act. That has a requirement that any time there's a security breach involving your health information, your you know medical information, right, right. then the hospital or the doctor or whoever is obligated to notify the patients of that breach. So we only have that in the context of health information in the state of Ontario. Wow. And I think now, it's, it's yeah. such an important law. Well, the, the, it's an important law. And let me just, for people who are listening who don't know what, what yes. our, our uh, security breach law was, in California we passed a law that became effective in July of 2003 that says that if you're any, any company or governmental agency that has found out that you have a security breach of information that had been electronic and it was unencrypted, then, you know, that's the yes. two things, that it was like electronic information, unencrypted, then you have a duty to disclose this to all possible victims of this, okay? Yes. Now, you need to know, and you probably do know this, Anne, is right now our federal government, yes. there's many bills pending in the legislature which are um, going to try and, you know, change that and, and yes. preempt that law to state that if there's a security breach, that the company themselves would make the decision if they thought there was a reasonable risk of identity theft. So we're, we're really very unhappy with that. Uh, I er- agree. I agree. And, you know, to, uh, after California, 23 other states have passed yes. security breach uh, legislation. But at Some different levels. Str- at different yes. level. But I'm, I'm worried about the federal law as well, that it would preempt the good laws that a number of states have passed, such as California. Yes. And, and you know, it, it, what's unfortunate is when I testified in Congress last May, um, it was sad to find out that there were many, many companies who admitted right in front of the Senate that they had security breaches before our law and they never disclosed them. I mean, we know the Choice Point did really? and LexisNexis yes, exactly, and exactly. Axiom. And so my belief is that if we water down this law and, and take away the, the good things that we've already learned from the security yes. breach law in California, we're not going to find out about these breaches. And people cannot put up barriers to protect themselves. No, I agree. I, I think it would be a uh, a step backwards, yeah. and and I'm hoping that doesn't happen. I, I think, uh, and especially California has led the way in this, and after choice points, um, you know, fumbling of it in terms yeah. of only notifying people in California and not any other states, and that directly led to the development of all these statutes in, in these other 23 states. So I hope it doesn't get watered down. I think that would be very unfortunate. Now, let me ask you something, Anne. So, since you only have this basically for your HIPAA law, yes. what uh, can you, in your privacy commission, do you ever really suggest laws for, for the legislature to we pass? We do, absolutely. And in fact, for the past two years, I've been suggesting very strongly to my government here that they pass a private sector law for privacy apply, applicable to all businesses in this in, the, in Ontario, and that this be a next generation law that would include 
a secure uh, breach notification requirement like California, and also a requirement for secure destruction of records. We haven't talked about that yet, but, you know, that also can be such a problem in terms of potentially leading to identity theft if people, companies, are finished with some personal information records and instead of uh, destroying them securely, such as cross-cut shredding or, you know, incinerating them or something, Mm -hmm. they actually just throw them in the dumpster sometimes. It, It just boggles my mind that you could contemplate doing that. And then We've had so many cases here where somehow the paper goes from the dumpster, gets on the streets, people access the information, it's sensitive yes, information. I mean. So we also would like, like you have a secure disposal rule, we want to have in this law a secure requir- a requirement for sec- the secure destruction of records and that it would be required by law, not just a good business practice. So, Anne, let me. So, it seems to me that we have more oversight for companies and laws for companies, yes. and you have more laws for government. <laughs> yes, yes, I think you're right. I think we need a, a balance of the two. Exactly. So, so I don't understand. Um, could you could recommend laws though for that that would affect the well, private industry as well? Yes, because for the the law that was passed, PHIPA, for example, the Personal Health Information Protection Act, right. we've been lobbying that for years. I don't know, five, six, seven, maybe more years. And finally, we got that law at the end of 2004. So uh, sometimes the government listens when you can make a strong case. So we're trying to, to make our case. And we've been pointing to all the cases of identity theft, the growth in identity theft, and the success you have had in the States with your breach notification laws that we don't have here. So we, we point to other jurisdictions that have it, try to make the right business case, and eventually get the law. But, Mari, if I can mention one thing to sure. businesses, if they do notice uh, a breach, whether they have uh, breach notification legislation or not, that, that, that companies should do the following. They should okay. have in place what we call um, a privacy breach protocol. So what do you do when you find a breach, when you detect a breach? And the first thing we recommend before you do anything else is, obviously, you have to contain the damage. You know, stop any further information from leaking out. I mean, you've got to just do that. So first you've got to find out what happened as quickly as possible and stop it at the first instance. Then right after that, we tell people whether you've got a breach notification law or not, notify. Notify the individuals involved, the consumers, whoever they be, you have an obligation to notify. It's a good business practice, whether you're required to do it or not. We always tell people, businesses especially, treat privacy as a business issue, not a compliance issue. It makes good sense, good business sense, to notify consumers, your, your clients, your customers of a breach immediately so that they can take the necessary action. Then, within your organization, inform your staff, communicate it widely about the breach within your organization, so that they can aid in whatever investigation you conduct to find out exactly how this happened. And then you change your practices to make sure it will never happen again. You adjust your policies and procedures, and you make damn sure this can never happen again in your organization. Exactly. And and we just hope that we can get this done and keep that kind of situation here because I think what's happened is, is people are so afraid to disclose it because they're afraid of what it's going to do to their to the stock market, you know, to their stock and to their reputation. And unfortunately, yes. you know, I don't know if you know the Poneman Institute. Yes, I know Larry Poneman yes, very well. I sit at, as one of their uh, research fellows. And, and oh, one of, isn't he great? Yes. <laughs> he's, he's been on the show several times as uh. well. And, and I think what's important to know is that people, you know, have more trust in you if they yeah. know that at least you're going to explain this. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we can just look historically at cases where companies have stepped up the, up to the plate when they noticed a problem, they went public with it, they took responsibility, they said, this is our responsibility, here's what happened, and here's what we're doing to fix it. They have not only kept their customers, but it has renewed the trust that those customers placed in that company initially because the company went public instead of trying to duck it, hide it. And I think the hiding it is such a mistake because invariably this stuff gets out. And then you have two problems. Not only do you have the initial breach, but you have the second problem that compounds that, which is that you tried to hide that. Right. Bad news. Exactly. Well, we only have a couple, just about a minute left, so I just want to tell you that we really appreciate your coming on. And oh, I'd like you to you. just give your website for us so people can find out more. It's IPC, as in I, Paul, Charlie, dot O-N, 
www.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca
can be lost very, very quickly if the technology is in the wrong hands. Um, I'm thinking who, uh, who said it? Uh, Alan Greenspan, I think, said the, the, the best uh, solution for an erosion of privacy by technology is more technology itself. So I, I really think it's, it's a case of what we do with the technology. The technology itself isn't inherently bad. It isn't inherently good. Uh, it can certainly violate your information, uh, your, your privacy, your confidentiality. It can allow you to be surveilled if it's in the wrong hands. Right. But on the other hand, technology in the right hands can mean convenience, efficiency, without a loss of privacy. Right. When you talk about uh, privacy, being an, a privacy architect and, and incorporating privacy into technology, are you, you're really talking about the fair information practices, aren't you, really? That's exactly right. We're looking at, at opportunities for building in the, uh, the, uh, the eight OECD fair information practices. We, we actually have ten here in Canada, so I call those my ten com- commandments. <laughs> and I'm, I build those ten com- commandments into systems. So could could you talk about those Ten Commandments? I know I've kind of got you off guard, but I think it's really important, you know, uh, and the fair information practices that we have, like with the FTC, there's like five of them. So let's talk a little bit about those Ten, really, uh, Ten Commandments of, of privacy, so to speak, that you have. Yeah, it's, it's also important to understand that the privacy, uh, the Ten of, uh, Principles here in Canada actually came about as part of legislation that we had introduced here, federal legislation. But prior to the federal legislation, they were actually brought about by interested parties in the business world and privacy commissioners such as, as Dr. Kavukian, whom you were previously speaking with. Her, uh, she worked extensively in the mid-90s to, um, to, in fact, adopt a model code. And that is exactly what we're, we're, we're looking at when we're, uh, when we're, we're implementing the uh, privacy here in Canada. Now, as we mentioned, uh, it's built as sort of an extension to the the OECD principles, right? And uh, they um, they provide for. You did catch me off guard. I'm stalling to try and find I found the con- I found con- canonical <laughs> copy of the con- <laughs> Canadian one in the appropriate order. Okay, let me see if I've got them because I think I I did some research on them, so I think I have them. Is it the one accountability? That's it. That's the first, the first one. one. Okay, tell us what you mean by accountability. Accountability. We're making sure that there is someone identified in the process or the system that has accountability for the information that's being con- collected. So accountability is having uh, either an organizational contact, someone in, in the leadership of your organization that will be accountable for privacy, that will be accountable to the data subject for information that, w- that will be co- collected, protected, used, and ultimately, we hope, securely destroyed at the end of the process. Okay, so that's a compliance there, right? Mm-hmm. The, okay, and then you have identifying purposes. Identifying purposes. One of the principles that we talk a lot about in uh, in, in the case of privacy violation is function creep. Function creep is a situation where information that was collected for one purpose is subsequently used for another purpose. So one of the Im- important precursors to determining whether or not a, a collection or use is appropriate is actually communicating to the data subject the identifying purpose. Why are we c- collecting your information? What do we intend to do with your information? Right. Like if you collect it in Canada, you have the social insur- insurance number, right? Like we, we have the social security number. Our, our SSN is your SIN, right? That's correct. We have an SIN. And supposedly, according to at least the major pieces of legislation here in Canada, there are only two purposes for which social insurance numbers should be co- collected. The first is being uh, by your employer to facilitate paying of taxes and other things, and secondly, by uh, by your bank or other investment uh, investment firm, so that they can properly report any interest that you might earn. Right. For example, in our social security number was only supposed to be used to to track your earnings, you know, so that you could get social security when you turn sixty five. And right. now it's used for everything in their brother. So that this is a real good example of the identifying purpose being used for multi-secondary, third, tertiary, and all other uses. Okay, the third one is consent. The, the third one is consent, and we can, we've sort of come to realize that in some government systems there isn't really a true uh, explicit consent for some programs. Here in, uh, in Canada we have socialized medicine. We have a government paid-for health care system. 
And although I, I suppose exercise consent when I fill in a government form to get my health insurance, I don't really have a choice. I can choose to pay for all my health coverage myself, or I can give certain information to the government. They will issue me a card. So we've come to recognize consent as being either explicit consent, where you specifically give it, implicit consent, where it can be assumed, mainly in the healthcare sector and other specified regulated sectors, and the last level of consent we just call knowledge, the fact that instead of actually obtaining explicit consent, we have a level of knowledge. Right. And here we talk a lot about also opt-in and opt-out. Opt-in, if you uh, choose to opt into something, you give your name and you're saying, okay, I want to get these emails. Opt-out is where they're already selling your information. You said, don't sell my information anymore. So that's one of the things we have. The the next one is limiting collection. Uh And this is one of the very important technical principles. One of the problems we have in some of the legacy systems that we've built, mainframe systems, is programmers from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, they built these systems to collect as much information as they could because invariably it was hard to change a system. It was easier to build a database one time up front with all of the information you might ever need than it would be to go back and change systems. So when we look at limiting collection, we look for opportunities to reduce the amount of information that we need to get. Do we, in fact, really need to get your entire birth date to give you a special fare on a bus? Maybe we could instead have a special fare for students that expire at the end of the month when they turn 18 instead of the actual day that they turn 18. Right, right. So there's opportunities to not collect quite so much information. Principle five is limiting use, disclosure, and retention. And that's a fairly broad term that talks about the whole life cycle of information. Now that we have information, what steps are we going to take to protect it while we use it, to limit the use to just what we want to use it for, to prevent any kind of disclosure? And when we talk about retention, we also bring in the the, the whole subject of secure destruction at the end of the informational life cycle. One of the things that I like to, to, to do when I'm designing any system that will collect information is decide at the time of collection when the information will be destroyed. Right. Uh, one of the things you'll see some, some companies will do with, uh, with filing, with file folder boxes, is they'll actually write on the boxes, shred or destroy after a certain date. We should do that same, take that same approach with information that's collected in a database. Determine in advance when it will be erased. Right. I have a great story about that. Once uh, there was a, a case that I was dealing with in San Diego in which I had gotten a call from a former employee of a uh, pharmaceutical agency in which um, she was a research scientist, and she and there were about a 100 other of her fellow researchers who became victims of identity theft, They and they all had worked at this company about 10 years before. And they were wondering why they kind of kept in touch. Where have you gone emailing each other? And they all found out, gee, I became a victim of identity theft. And the other one said, yes, I did too. Well, long story short, it all went back to that particular company. And what they had done was they had taken old payroll information that has your social security number on it, which in our country is the key to the kingdom of identity theft, Uh put it in a storage room in which maintenance people and bottle washers and everybody and their brother had access and here they are you know 10 years after not working at this company these boxes were brought home and information was sold to everybody in this particular neighborhood in san diego and that's how they became now that's talk about retention and that's talk about disclosure you know those are real examples of when this goes awry you know oh unfortunately that's all too common and also unfortunately the solution is just so simple Yes. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's a shame these people didn't erase their hard disk. It's a shame these people didn't shred their paperwork. Exactly. And that they just didn't get rid of it, you know, five years afterward. And just I, I, I'm not sure if you're aware. There was a high-profile case here in t- Toronto last year where live medical records were found on a movie shoot site, on a movie site. Oh, dear. Um, unfortunately, the same thing had happened. These were old records that had been supposedly disposed of. They were purchased uh, by... A, a subsequent prop company, and then accidentally used uh, for the filming of a movie here last year. Oh, my goodness. I mean, something like that, you might say, well, it, you know, just shred them. But even more fundamentally, 
if you apply the, the principle of addressing it early, maybe you take a rubber stamp and write on the piece of paper in the doctor's office, you put the word confidential, destroy so securely, right. right on the piece of paper. Then everyone who handles that piece of paper will know this isn't a piece of paper that should be lying in the street somewhere. Exactly. Well, let's get to the next one, accuracy. Accuracy. It's very important from a, uh, a fair information practice point of view to have accurate, complete, and up-to-date information. So one of the principles is that we need to make sure our information isn't out of date, that, in fact, we're rel- relying on information that is is good. It's being co- collected perhaps directly from the individual or as close to the individual as we can get, as opposed to information that might be picked up in, in di- directly. It's also information that we can assume hasn't been modified improperly. That's what accuracy And, you know, the, another good example of that, and we have this here a lot, you know, these information brokers pick up stuff from various other data brokers, okay? And then they sell that information. And I just had this case that you may have heard in one of the podcasts, Ray Lorenzo, who found out that there was erroneous information uh, of the, claiming that he was a, a felon in New York. And um, and so this kept getting resold and resold, and there, and it wasn't accurate. And he had no access to even correct those records to make them accurate. I mean, we finally did it. We finally got a court judgment. But talk about trying to deal with records that are inaccurate that you don't even have access to. That's that's a huge issue for you, us, Peter. Next, uh, next we have safeguards. Yep. We we usually talk about security safeguards, and these are protections from the security world that we will incorporate to make sure information is protected. There's a great deal of overlap, in my professional opinion, in between the safeguards principle and many of the other principles. For instance, right. I will actually, at the under the covers in, in a system, I will use many of the security primitives, such as access control, such as uh, encryption, uh, such as uh, uh, hash codes for, uh, for authentication, and uh, and non-repudiation. I will use many of those to ensure that use is limited and retention is limited in many of those other areas. But the uh, the con- consensus was when these principles were, were were being put to to together that security safeguards needs its own principle to talk specifically about what steps are taken to look after data. Yeah. Now that would include audit trails, wouldn't it, Peter? It would include audit trails, but we can also say that audit trails have an overlap, I think, with limiting use and retention. Right. Because chances are you're going to use some of those audit trails to um, to actually enforce that. But absolutely, there would be audit trails. There would be access controls. One could even imagine some of the uh, some of the other ones, uh, the the other security functions that could be used to um, to uh, to enforce pre- protections for for data. Exactly. The next one is openness. This is a real big one. Openness. Openness again is tied in with uh, with purpose specification. Uh, openness is is there to ensure that there aren't any covert collections of information. That in fact individuals are informed about the policies and practices of a given information system. There's really no point in having all of these wonderful rights and rights of access, rights of challenge, rights of uh, rights of appeal if we don't know what's happening. Right. And in many cases, I'll, I'll say prior to this legislation being brought in. Uh, there were many companies that, in fact, didn't even understand their own information practices, never mind being open with their customers about their information right. practices. <laughs> even the employees don't even know, right? Yeah. That's right. Now, the next one is individual access. This one's really an important one, especially now, you know, in, in um, the United States now, we're talking about these information brokers like Axiom and ChoicePoint and LexisNexis and the myriad other data brokers that are selling information about us if we want to get a job, all these background checks. And most of us don't have any access to those records. So that's that's huge. Yeah, here, here in, individual access says that I, as a citizen, as an individual, as a customer, have a right to be informed as to what's in my file. What information do you have about me? And then I can challenge its, its accuracy, its completeness. Per, perhaps I can also say, hey, you shouldn't have that information because you never told me you would be com- collecting that right, information. Right, right. So it's, it's really there to make sure that all of the other rules are being followed. Right, and how can I correct if I don't have access, right? Exactly. It's, it's important to remember, though, it's not absolute. There are certain situations, especially when you're dealing with, uh, with, uh, with, with government legislation, uh, and even when you're dealing with some, uh, some specific uh, information that might reveal a trade secret 
to a given company that it isn't always assured that you'll get everything that's in your file. Right, but certain things like, for example, with a credit report, and you have credit reporting agencies in, in Canada as well. Absolutely. You know, if I if I can't have access, I can't correct, and then I might be denied a job, I might be denied a mortgage or a tenancy if I can't have access to correct, right? Absolutely, but we've also seen here a decision coming out of the federal office with respect to credit files. While you have a right to credit information being held on you by your bank, if your bank uses a fancy algorithm to calculate something like a FICO credit score that's proprietary to the bank, you don't have a right to know how that's calculated, yeah. which is a little unfortunate in my opinion, but you understand that there's a trade-off there in between individual rights and corporate rights. Right, and they've kind of changed that in the United States now. You pretty much have a chance to know at least how, how what affects your score. You may not know the algorithm exactly, but, but they have to tell you what affects your score so that you can do certain things to raise your, your credit score so you can buy that house or get that loan. Let's talk about the last one, challenging compliance. The last one, challenging compliance, says that if, in fact, I have some kind of complaint, I have a right to challenge the the company about their practices, about their procedures in, in place to protect my privacy in, in terms of uh, if they've collected information they shouldn't be, if they're using it in a way they shouldn't be. And there's a, I think there's an assumption on the part of, the, uh, of our privacy commissioner here, our federal privacy commissioner, that perhaps the first step in challenging compliance is to take the issue up with the company themselves. Many companies now, in addition to having privacy offices, have ombudsmen, Right. So you take the issue up with the with the individual company, and if you don't get satisfaction there, then there may be a an, an option for redress, as we have here in Canada, with the privacy commissioner. Right. Let me just uh, introduce you real quick again, in case people are driving by and, and they're saying this man is brilliant. Who is he? We're talking to Peter Hope Tyndall, and he is a privacy expert with Data Privacy Partners at dataprivacy.com. Peter, I want to go to one of your, your biggest expertise and tell us everything you know about biometrics in the next 10 minutes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay, see what you can tell us. Um, there's, uh, we're seeing a huge interest at the moment in biometrics. For first start, I'm wondering if it's useful to explain to your guests what biometrics yes. are. Yes, please do that. Okay, biometrics, uh, and this is a fairly technical definition, are an automated method of identification or authentication and they work by measuring the unique human characteristics that we have. For right. instance, uh, the ridges on our fingers, the shape of our hand, the image of our face, and the way that our cheekbones and our nose are positioned on our face, as right. well as uh, iris scans, retinal scans, or even some of the more colorful technologies that are being worked on, gait recognition, which recognizes the specific and curious way that each one of us walks. Oh, wow. Okay. Or <laughs> even, of all the weird things, uh, um, smell. There are, in fact, a set of unique pheromones and, uh, uh, and chemicals that are unique to each of us. And there, there is funded research going on to, in fact, look at ways of identifying given individuals from the smells that those individuals would happen to create. And voice prints, too, right? Voice prints, too. Uh, there's certainly a number of, of technologies. The, the big uh, technologies in use t t t today and likely the, uh, f for the next five to, to ten years would be finger scanning. Right, the fingerprints. Voice, uh -huh. voice recognition, face recognition, and uh, iris scanning, retinal scanning. Okay, so they want to use that to identify us because obviously everybody's going that way because the SIN in your country and the social security number in this country is, you know, is too easy to just capture and somebody say, this is, you know, I'm you. So they want to use biometric information, right? That's correct. Okay, so let's talk about what are some of those privacy concerns that we I should think about? I like to talk about three distinct privacy concerns with biometrics. The first goes back to our, our, our brief discussion about purpose specification, and that is function creep. The risk that we may build a biometric system, maybe we'll build a biometric system to work with our banks to protect our, our bank accounts so we don't have to remember passwords or, or PINs. Right. But maybe five years from now, uh, someone will come along and say, hey, we could use this biometric system for something else. Maybe we could use it to find terrorists. Maybe we could use it, in addition to your bank, we could use it for, uh, for some other purpose. Maybe you'll have to use a biometric every every single time you go down to the corner store now. Uh, what, what about if they use it, like, let's say your bank 
has uh, is in uh, associated with your insurance company, That's and they one use of, your you know something in your iris scan, and they use that, and they can see well, from your iris is, scan uh, something. I, I like to d- distinguish that. That's more of a case of information leakage, and what you're talking oh, about okay. is that certain other information, health information, uh, information about us, may leak through certain biometrics. And you talked about iris scanning. Uh, that isn't necessarily, I think, as proven as as, as retinal scanning. In the case of retinal scanning, we can pick up certain conditions, diabetes, uh, certain other conditions that, in fact, manifest themselves in a change on the retina. So at the same time as we're collecting a retinal scan for the purposes of identification, we might also pick up some other information about a medical condition you might have. So that's a case of information leakage. But uh, I suppose it fairly falls within the guise of function creep. The, The second risk I like to talk about is the risk that if we start having biometric systems, it'll become the default for a form of identification mm-hmm. in much the same way that the credit card has become the default form of payment. Try renting a car or staying in a hotel room without a credit card. It's right. very hard. So I'm, I'm concerned that in, in a future we might have a system where companies may say you're not worth uh, the hassle if you can't authenticate biometrically. We're not going to deal with you. Right. And that may create an underclass of people who do have problems with biometric systems. I have a problem using iris scanners with my, uh, with my right eye. My left eye is fine, but for whatever reason, my right eye gives me a problem. There are those uh, in, certain, in certain racial groups and in certain age groups that have a lot more problems with, with finger scanners than most people do because the definition and the, uh, the thickness of their skin isn't enough to extract enough information from a finger scan. Hmm. So that's the, the second problem I like to talk about. And thirdly, I like to talk about the problem that we have with the covert nature of some of these technologies. Uh, I talk a little bit about gate recognition and, uh, and iris scanning. I mean, a- anyone who has seen the movie Minority Report right. knows all about iris scanning. Right. Apparently, they can, uh, they can use this technology to get you from across the room when you're coming out of a subway. Well, not quite. We're not really at that stage yet. But I have seen... A live, uh, a live demonstration of a system that could scan approximately three feet away. Wow. So if I've seen a demonstration like that, I'm sure there must be military applications that are, in fact, a lot further distances. Face recognition also is a technology that can be used from a distance. And our concern with, with distance technologies is they may be used in the absence of consent or even in the absence of knowledge. People may not even know that their biometric sample has been taken. Yeah, and that goes back to the idea of, of, of collection, knowing, having exactly. the Exactly. Cons- yeah. so those are the, the three concerns I like to, to, to talk about as being the major concerns with biometrics. Peter, we only have two more minutes. I can't believe it. Can you tell us a little, what, what else would you like to tell us in the last two minutes that we've got? And we're going to have to get you back on here very soon. Uh, I think <clears> the biggest thing I could tell you in the last two minutes is at an individual level, you can be responsible for your privacy by making sure that you're using all of the technology that you can use to protect your privacy. Make sure that you're encrypting your mail. Make sure that you're encrypting your backup tapes, that you're making both uh, individuals that are making backups, but all too often I've seen companies that haven't encrypted their backup tapes and they've misplaced them or lost them. Right. They could have avoided security breaches. Yeah. yeah. It's just so simple. And all the software that's available commercially today includes encryption functionality for backup. It's, it's, it's mundane. It's fairly easy to, to use. Peter, wh- let me ask you this, because we only have a minute left. Now, what do you suggest for like my, my consumers and, and the business people that are driving by and listening to this? What kind of con- encryption can we use that's very simple? Are you talking about PGP, or what, what are you suggesting that we look at to learn about how to do this? I'm talking about... <clears throat> PGP, there are, there are in fact many software products that support encryption natively. Um, Microsoft Outlook, the Apple Mail product has, has a number of add-ins that allow you to encrypt and sign the, uh, you, your email. So many email packages in fact now have encryption built right in. Okay. Well, this is we're, we're out of time. I want to thank you so much, Peter, for coming on. And I promise you we're going to get you back on here, and we're going to let you do whatever you want to do, all right? We're going to get you on for an hour. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been uh, listening right now to uh, Peter Hope Tyndall, who is a privacy expert with Data Partners LTD.
And you can go to his website at dataprivacy.com and learn more about him and all of the encryption and biometrics and all those good things. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and on the web at KUCI.org. You're listening to Privacy Piracy. Please visit and see our previous guests and listen to their interviews and down, down, uh, download our podcasts at KUCI.org forward slash privacy piracy. Thank you, Lloyd, and see you next Wednesday at 5 p.m. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.